Exodus 32 for a scripture reading this morning. The title of the message has to do with God's attitude towards his people. He was not pleased. And the um, scripture text is at least refers to this story. And so I will be reading the entire chapter. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered round him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague upon the people, because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 10. We're looking at verses 1 through 22. You can look that up in your copies of the scriptures. The passage in Exodus 32 is a prime example of man's desire, of man's willingness to go into idolatry. If you think about the place of those particular people, not long ago they had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They had escaped the Egyptians. They had seen the plagues that God had placed upon the Egyptian people. And you would think of all people, these people would know who God is. They would understand who God is. And these people for sure would not turn around and go into idolatry. But we see that they did. Moses was gone, we're not really sure how long, but probably not that long. And they're saying, who is this God? Who is this Moses? We don't really know him anymore. Make us another God. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about these people. And the Apostle Paul is using them as a warning to us. Telling us that everything in our life, even the things we do well, everything has the possibility of becoming an idol. Going to church can become an idol. Having a great marriage can become an idol. Raising good kids can become an idol. And even as we will see in this passage, 
partaking of baptism and of the Lord's Supper can even become an idol. Idolatry is in a real sense the most egregious of the sins we humans commit. Basically, idolatry says that God's stuff is more important than God himself. Idolatry says that what makes me happy is more important than the God who created me and gave me the ability to even begin to be happy. Now, we modern Western people, we don't struggle with worshiping a deity or an idol deity. There are places in the world that um, have that issue, but for the most part, Western people don't have uh, graven images uh, or temples to uh, large marble statues. But we actually have a trouble worshiping any deity at all. In the places of deity, we have placed the many and the various things that gratify ourselves. In fact, we've made idols out of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us that the children of Israel had all the spiritual benefits. As we, as we look at where they've just come from, we, we ask ourselves, how could they possibly do this? They had all the spiritual benefits that one would need to place their entire trust in God. But we know that most of them died in the wilderness. In fact, there was two who entered the promised land. Chapter 10 asks us to look constantly within our heart for the tentacles of idolatry that can spring upon us. Before we read chapter 10, I'd like us to refer back to chapter 8 and chapter 9 because they... Uh, inform us what Apostle Paul is attempting to do in chapter 10. In verses 19 through 27 of chapter 9, Paul states that he simply doesn't want to punch the air. He doesn't want to be a boxer who doesn't hit his opponent. He doesn't want to train for a race, but then not achieve the prize. He wants his life to count he wants to stay true. And in doing so, he disciplines his body. And he keeps it under control for the express purpose of not being disqualified. He doesn't want to get to the end of his life and have God say that he was not pleased. He does not want the appetites and the desires of his body to be the cause of his falling away. And in chapter 10 here, he uses the children of Israel as an example. God was not pleased with them because they trusted their position. They trusted their desires. They thought, well, we, we have the temple. We're God's chosen people. So we have some freedom. They did not carefully follow God. As we read the passage uh, ask you to note a few, uh, a few key themes. Uh, notice the references to baptism and to the Lord's Supper. Notice the five benefits that the Israelites had and then the five ways that they fell away. And then finally, notice in the latter part the theme of participation with Christ or participation 
with demons, and we'll interact with that um, at the end. So let's go ahead and, and read the passage here. 1 Corinthians 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I, see, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In a very simple form here, we have three, uh, I think, three specific ideas that are presented here. Paul first gives the benefits, and then he gives the failures, and then he gives the solution to the problems that we all face when it comes to the idolatrousness of our own hearts. So first we'll look at the benefits that the Israelites enjoyed, and we'll think of them in terms of ourselves. We'll look at the failures that they, um, that they had and how that applies to us, and then we'll look at the solution that the Apostle Paul gives. So of the benefits that the Israels, the benefits enjoyed by the Israelites were many. First, 
there was the cloud. The cloud represented the presence of God. The cloud provided guidance as Moses led the people through an unknown land. It protected the people by separating them from the Egyptians at night. At Mount Sinai, the cloud covered the mountain to protect the people of God. And in the temple, the cloud entered the temple representing the presence of God there. We too enjoy the cloud. God is ever present to those who call upon his name. We are assured that where two or three are gathered in his name, the cloud of his presence will be there. The second benefit was that of baptism. The Israelites followed Moses through the Red Sea. And in a sense, it's a picture of their baptism. Their baptism as belonging, as the people of God. You can imagine standing on the side of, that, of the Red Sea and, and seeing that path and seeing the Egyptians stepping through the path was clearly stating that you trusted God. That you trusted Him to protect you from what was coming behind. That you trusted Him to protect you from the water. Um, baptism for us is something much similar. By being baptized, we are publicly stating that we are depending on God. That the sin around us is chasing us. But the way through the water was, in a sense, a picture of Christ as an escape from that sin, is a remedy. And so by being baptized, we are stating our dependence on God, very similar to what they were doing. The third benefit that the Israelites had was that of spiritual food. God provided manna for the children of Israel when food could not be found in the wilderness. The manna was not sourced from the earth, but was provided supernaturally by God. In the same way, God provided water sources in the desert to sustain them. We too feast on the spiritual food. In, in our case, it's the Lord's Supper. The body of Christ was provided to bear the burden of our spiritual famine. We cannot find a remedy for our lost condition. But Christ's blood was shed to wash away our sins. And that imagery of, of the food as it sustains the Israelites should be the same in our spiritual lives. That the body and the blood of Christ is what sustains us. And with these benefits, Paul is instructing us to pay attention because as we will see, these bountiful benefits do not ensure faithfulness. In fact, the Israelites failed miserably. Miserably enough that God said he was not pleased with them. The availability of the benefits did not ensure that they would follow God. Paul points out five key failures which led the Israelites into God's displeasure. The first failure, and sort of a, a blanket failure, was that of desiring evil. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. 
their issue and our issue is that fundamentally we believe that God is, isn't being fair. He's holding back something from us. He's stopping us from the pleasures that we wish to enjoy. When he says to the Israelites, don't intermarry, they thought he was preventing their enjoyment. He was protecting them by saying that. When we read some of God's requirements for believers, we're tempted to say that he's just stopping us from full enjoyment. In fact, you hear the arguments like that around the justification for certain actions or behaviors. God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be fulfilled. He wants me to have a good life now. And to be happy, I need to be able to live this way. I need to be able to act in this way. We must come to a place where we acknowledge that God is first of all good and that he has our full ultimate enjoyment in view. He sees the full picture, not just the the glass that we see through darkly. He sees all. The second failure of the Israelites was that of idolatry. In the case of the Israelites in Exodus 32, they refused to recognize the real power of God that they had seen mightily. And they worshipped a golden calf that was crafted by Aaron. They replaced God with something they had chiseled with their own hands. They traded what was real for that which was fake. And I ask us as well, how often are we guilty of the same? We create gods of our pleasure. We create gods of our wealth. We create gods of nature. We create gods of other people. And again, idolatry is simply when we replace God with the stuff that he created. The third failure was that of sexual immorality. It is apparent that the revelry around the golden calf also included immorality. And later, under the advice of Balaam, the people of Moab lured the Israelites into immorality. Our culture, as well, is a sexually broken culture. Immorality is not an exception. It is far too normal. And this culture that we live in shapes us. So we must guard carefully against the sexual deviancy of our culture. Sexual freedom is not the freedom to act how I desire with no restraints, because we see that it, it was their destruction. Their destruction came as a result of that. Freedom comes when we walk in the ways that God teaches us and we obey His path to fulfillment. The fourth and fifth failure was that of putting Christ to the test and grumbling about His provisions. They grumbled about the manna, and they grumbled about the water, and they grumbled about the meat. And they tested Christ's provision for them. They took for granted that the manna was a gift of God, and they forgot that without it they would have perished. They questioned whether God was with them. 
It's actually quite hilarious. Man on the ground every morning, where is God? Birds fly in and die at your feet so you can eat them. Where is God? Water coming out of a rock. Where is God? It's actually quite silly for them to think that way. But we too can take for granted that Christ is the sacrifice in our place. And we want more. The modern health and wealth preachers are not satisfied with a God who provides spiritual and eternal sustenance. But they want a God to be a purveyor of earthly health and wealth and comfort. How often do we as well treat God as, as kind of the, the wish list in the sky? And when we pray, it's, it's all requests. God, do this for me. God, do that for me. God, do this for me. Why is it that we want more when in fact everything, everything that is necessary for, for our enjoyment is His, is already ours in Christ? In fact, the manna is on the ground, but we chase inferior food. As we looked at these benefits and at these failures, hopefully you were able to see areas in your life where you don't fully trust God. Places where you allow stuff to replace Him. And we all do this. We were doing some uh, personality tests at, at work to see who we all are and how we all fit together. And one of the, uh, the phrases in mine um, says that I'm, I'm quick to chase after new things. And uh, so I'll have a particular hobby in this, and I'll, I'll go after it 110%. Only six months later to have another one. Going at it, 110%. Chasing things that really never give full satisfaction. And we need God, we need Him in His work and His trying to purify us, to cleanse us. I need to find satisfaction in Him, complete, that none of these other things ever create. And so in verses 12 through 22, we see three solutions to our idolatry. Solution number one is to be aware to be aware of your ability to fall and to be aware of God's faithfulness. Uh, verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us. And then later on, uh, verse 11, uh, let's see here. Again, now these things happen to them as an example. And in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be aware. Take heed. Look carefully at your life. Look at the example of the Israelites. Realize that you can be just as tempted as they. And also realize that the temptations that come your way are God's means of cleansing and purifying you. 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful, that he won't, he won't let you go. In fact, if we read the account of Job and some of the accounts of Peter, those temptations are allowed by God for our trying, for our testing. But he provides us a way to escape. Realize that your sinful inclinations, they're common to men. None of us are tempted um, extraordinarily. Um, each of us are tempted as men are. But God is on our side, and he'll provide a way to persevere and to emerge victorious in the end. Place no trust in your ability to do so. Place no trust in your ability to rescue yourself. Watch yourself carefully. Place your full confidence on the good sovereignty of God, that He has led you here and that He will lead you out. Solution number two is to flee idolatry. Run, get out, race away, leave it behind. Like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, Leave with great haste. When we see idolatry, we must be like Paul and carefully discipline our bodies and not become servants to them. And so when temptation arises to displace God from His place of supremacy, we must war against it with everything we have. And our first impulse must be to flee, to run away especially when it comes to idolatry. If we understand that this idolatry is the ultimate ruination of our soul, if we understand it carries that weight, that it will ruin us eternally, then we should have our eyes and ears peeled for the first hint of it, and we should flee it. The third solution is found in participation with Christ. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. You see the imagery of the Lord's Supper. When we as a body partake of the communion table, we are stating that we have died with Christ or in Christ. We are accepting His broken body and His shed blood as the means by which we are made right to God. We are affirming it as the only way to be reconciled with God. When we participate, we by our actions are stating our allegiance. So when we're faced with idolatry, when we're faced to participate in other things, we must remember the gospel, that we were broken, but that Christ died to rescue us. That Christ died to make a way that we can be reconciled to God. When we are tempted to participate in the world's value system, 
We are in effect participating with demons. And here Paul is bringing back up the idea of meat offered to idol. And again, he's rejecting the idea that that meat is any different than any other meat. It's still meat. The idol isn't a god. The idol can't do anything to the meat. But specifically in the Corinthian context, they were participating in feasts, in carnivals, in parties, where the first blessing was that of meat offered to these idols. The parties existed because of the idol. And so when a Christian would take part in those events, they were in fact participating with the pagans. Now, the pagans weren't really worshiping a god because that idol is not a god, but they were succumbing to the devil's influence. He was causing them to find value in those places, and they were agreeing with him. And so, in fact, the pagans were participating with the demons in their own destruction. And so he asked, how can we as Christians participate with the demons when we say we're participating with Christ? We can't participate with both. And I think the Corinthians had a firm understanding that the food, the feast, really wasn't what the pagans thought it was. But they didn't realize by their actions that they were participating. When we participate in an event that pulls us away from our participation with Christ, we are in fact joining with the demons. We're joining with those who would destroy our soul. The demons are about causing us to stumble and fall. That's their mission. That's their goal. They want us to succumb to idolatry. So when we participate even in small ways with their means, we are in fact participating with their goals. The Corinthians thought that since they had been baptized and that they had taken the Lord's Supper, that they were saved and they were safe and they could do these things. But in fact, they were putting those emblems to shame. They were putting the bread and the wine to shame. We too must be careful not to rest on our attendance at a particular church or our service to that church or the fact that we have partaken of the ordinance. We cannot hold these up and say, I do these things, and so I'm safe. We cannot say, I did my duty here, now I can participate in some of these other events which bring glory to man. There is not two worlds. We can either participate with Christ or we can participate with demons. When we say we can do both, in fact, we're telling God that we're stronger than He is, that we know better than He does. The final verse says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And in reality, that's what idolatry says. Idolatry says that my pursuits are greater than God. That what I want from life is greater than God wants for me. 
So in conclusion this morning, I ask you to think carefully about your life. What are the defining pursuits of your life? What are the things that you would say make you who you are? What do people know you as? Is Christ central there? Are you satisfied with what God has provided you? Are we satisfied with the spiritual food that He gives each of us? Or are we demanding more? And thirdly, is your full trust and confidence in Christ alone? Is His sacrifice enough? Or do you allow yourself to trust in things that you have done? As we're all aware, there is coming a day when all of this will be known. That day has come for the Israelites that Paul refers to. We know. We know their end. But do we realize that that day of knowledge is coming for us? I'll close by reading a portion of Isaiah 2, which describes that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He will rise to terrify the earth. In that day... Mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliff from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Shall we pray? Father, this morning we repent of the ways in which we have placed things in front of you, where we have placed the, the stuff of this earth and we have called it more important. Father, I pray that you would cause each of us to see clearly those areas in our lives. Father, to flee from them, to run away, and to rest only in Christ. To rest in His sacrifice, in His body, in His blood as the only way with which we can stand on that last day and not be scared and not be afraid of what will be turned up but that we can rest in your majesty, rest in your glory, 
Father, may we value you above all that our world offers. We pray that you would do this work in us. We admit that we are, are feeble. Pray that you would guide us this week. Help us to see these things in our lives and to live more as those who obey you and those who live according to your word. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.